We've heard predictions of the imminent economic collapse in the West for decades, but with the Fed printing more U.S. dollars than ever before in history, the signs of the end sure seem to be drawing nearer. Today, we speak with an author who's been writing about these economic and political issues in fiction books, but he's an OG in the crypto world and is able to tie it all together with an interesting narrative. So join us as we welcome Lars Emmerich to the show and ask the question, is this the end of the U.S. dollar on a thrilling episode number 605 of the Bad Crypto Podcast? Five, four, three... Are you ready for some thrills, some chills, some spills? Can you clean no. that up? Don't, don't spill that. Clean, clean that up. I just already made a mess. I'm sorry. Is it milk? Quit crying. Uh, Trav. I don't cry over spilled milk anymore. I'm done with that. I know. You just, it's like, there's no point. It's like, move on, clean it up, grab some bounty. It's um, apparently, I've been uh, programmed to believe it's a quicker picker upper. You know, I've I've soaked up the propaganda from all the advertising and you get a bounty. It's quicker. It'll pick it up faster. Do it. <laughs> That's right. Very good. I love it. This is going to be an interesting show for you folks. You're going to uh, gonna rock and roll. And uh, we're going to have some interesting conversations about this because the U.S. dollar is maybe in uh, it's hanging on the edge here. Right. Because there's a lot of countries now that are no longer going to be using the dollar uh, as the petrodollar to be actually. And, you know, what you've always had to do is you had to have dollars before you could buy oil. And so they didn't trade in all these other different currencies. They all traded in dollars. That could be going away. And the person we're chatting with today is uh, has, has written some thriller, uh, a, a thriller book series about, you know, his version of the way things might be going. And and it's not uh, it's not his real name. His name is, is Lars, but it's not his real name. But we're not going to tell you his real name because he chooses not to. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go ahead and get to our interview with Lars Emmerich. Escape to a world where spies and assassins hide in plain sight until a red-headed magazine model punches their ticket. Silly boys catching spies is for girls. That's the tagline when you go to the website at Lars.buzz because there is a piece of fiction written by a best-selling author, a Bitcoin veteran, a former F-16 pilot. His name is Lars Emmerich, and he is with us now to talk about a good many things, including this uh, thriller that he's written. Lars, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Pleasure to be here. Honor. You guys are badasses. I'm happy to be in your company. When somebody asks you what kind of book, you know, your style, you write, do you ever go, it's a thriller? I want to. I want to do the moonwalk. I give you permission. Yeah. You you can do that if you want to. I'm, oh, I'm good I, with I may do that, but I can't. You got to do the dance, a, though. You can't just do it. You got to do the thing. You gotta, you gotta, yeah. You gotta, oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You can't just do a half-ass. We're Grab showing our age. Your kick your leg. Go, <laughs> All right. So let's. Uh, we talked a little bit before I hit record, and I found out that you're an OG. You've been mining Bitcoin since 2013. So go ahead and put a little more meat on the skeleton here of the bones that I offered up about your past. Yeah, I was. Um, I was getting close to the end of my Air Force career, and I was like, uh, "Hey, what what should we do?" 
um, financially here? Like, and that started to get in, into deeper questions like what is value and how do you store it? And how do you keep it from slipping through your fingers, right? And, and what a world, weird world we live in when you can't just keep your money because your money loses its value. So what, if money doesn't hold value, then what the hell holds value? And um, that led, you know, first to, well, what have we done for thousands of years? We lugged gold around, but that's highly impractical and it, it doesn't really work all that well uh, across large distances unless you involve quote unquote trusted third parties. Because they had all those train robbers and shit coming there and stopping the train and stealing everyone's gold. That's right. They used to have horses and, and six shooters, and now they've got ties and tall buildings, right? It's sort of the same idea. Ah, I see that. I see what you did. That's true. But, um, Thanks but yeah, and that sort of led me down the bunny trail, and, and I don't know how I stumbled upon it. And yet you did, and then here you are. To carry it around in your pocket, it sort of just exists out there. And uh, so I got really intrigued with the idea and uh, placed an order for one of the first uh, ASIC mining rigs. Say one of the, I don't know exactly if it was the first. I don't think it was the first, but one of them, it was built by a company called KNC Miner, and it was called the Jupiter Miner. And so I placed this order and, and um, wired this money over to some strange bank in some strange location. And I was like, gee, I don't know if this is going to work out, man. You know, I'm glad this is not dinner money or mortgage money because who knows where this is going. And of course there are production delays. And, and as the miner kept getting delayed, the price of Bitcoin kept going up. And so did the, or sorry, not the price of Bitcoin, but the difficulty kept going up. And so at one point I even emailed them. I was like, Hey, can you pretty please cancel this order? I feel like I've already missed the boat. <laughs> I've already missed. I've already missed the party. I'm way too late. You know, here we are in 2013, and they politely told me to kiss off. I signed the contract, shut up in color, and uh, the miner showed up. Lo and behold, it did life changing things for me and my family. So I'm glad they didn't let me cancel that little miner. <laughs> yeah, that would have changed. That would have changed the game if they would have. You, we wouldn't be interviewing you today. It'd be a whole other story. It'd be Mr. a whole Lars other story. If that's your real name. Whoa, definitely not. <clears throat> Lars Matey. All right. So, so you, you got into crypto 2013. You started mining, started mining. And this one miner was able to generate lots of Bitcoin for you? Yeah. I mean, at the time, it wasn't life changing. It took a few years for it to be life changing. But, but yeah, it, you know, it, um, if you hold on to them, it turns out. Uh, they, they tend to increase in value because they're scarce. So that's like a thing. Yeah. Apparently. Who knew? Apparently. Allegedly. Allegedly. I've heard of that. There's only a few of them. I mean, yeah. there's how many trillions of dollars are there out in the world? And there's only 21 million Bitcoin ever? Huh. It's like 100 billion more per month currently being printed. Did I read that someplace? Maybe I'm misinformed. Do your own research. But it no seems like information. You're going to get us canceled. Uh, but maybe not so quickly on Twitter because uh, Elon is now the owner, 100% owner. What do you think of that? What do you think of what Twitter has become, which I don't think you participate in? And what do you think is going to happen with uh, Mr. Musk at the helm? Well, I think, I mean, I, I do peripherally participate in Twitter. I think it's a great place to display your ignorance for many people. I think it's also a great place to learn a lot of things from a lot of really smart 
intelligent, interesting, well-informed people. So I think the experience you have on Twitter depends entirely on the circles that you're swimming in on Twitter. And so I, I, um, I, I don't post frequently at all, uh, but I, I do use it to uh, sort of cue some interesting research. Where's it going with, with uh, Elon at the helm? Man, it's hard to say. E- Elon's, uh, he's a tough guy to predict. I think he's used uh, Twitter to move markets around uh, in his favor. Um, I think it'll be, I think it'll be quite interesting to see what he does and where where he takes it. Um, it's unlikely to be the same as it uh, as it is currently. I think. I think it'll only take a little bit of time. It does seem like some people are getting more exposure now already. Like I don't know, he said, "Flip the switch" or something. <laughs> Right. And people who weren't getting followers all of a sudden are getting followers. And uh, I still feel like, yeah, yeah, this will all be really interesting to see how it plays out. Um, You know, there's a there are compelling interests on on both sides of this thing. The first side being, hey, this is a free country and and um, it is built on free speech. The other side being you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Right. So. And that's really hard to parse. Where does that line fall? And I think it falls in a slightly different place depending on the topic you're talking about and depending on the particular circumstances involved in that topic. And it's really, really hard to figure out right from wrong, true from false, um, harmful from not harmful. It's just devilishly subject to your point of view and the background that you're that you're coming from. Um, it will really be interesting. I personally think that uh, the the best antiseptic for bad ideas is not censorship, but exposure. And uh, there will be some folks who get in line behind those bad ideas and they'll, they'll want to do crazy things, but other folks will, I think, engage intelligently and go, hey, maybe we don't want to burn everything down at the moment. It took us a long time to build it. Maybe some things need fixing. Maybe we can work on fixing these things and, and not melt the whole thing down and uh, start from, who knows, you know, uh, some equivalent of the, of the Stone Age. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out. I think it'll be really interesting to see. Um, I hope the conversations become that you're able to have them again back on a more mainstream in a more mainstream format. All of that's complicated though, by the fact that when you're online, you can be a complete jerk, right? You can, you can say things in a way that aren't terribly helpful and that tend to just piss people off. And rather than making a point, you make an enemy. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the way to go either. So we, I mean, we, as a, as a group of folks hanging around on the rock, spinning around the sun, we need to figure out how to talk to each other about d- different points of view and different opinions. But I think the better way to do that is not to silence dissenting voices, but to hear them out and engage them honestly and openly without being an ass about it. I wonder how many of the dissenting voices are. They just don't want people to be hearing those points of view. It's not so much that it's fake news or it's not. A lot of times it's real news and they don't want people to be, to be subjected to that because it makes them think differently. I, I thought it was funny when Elon bought Twitter. The very first thing that happened was um, <clears throat> the uh, Babylon Bee 
Twitter account was uncanceled. It basically got turned back on. And so <clears throat> that was actually oh, that's the thing interesting. that pissed off. That's the thing that pissed off Elon was like, really? You're going to ban a parody satire site? Seriously? <laughs> um, one yeah. with the reach of, you know, the Babylon Bee. And so he was like, oh, and then like right after that, he was like, well, you think the Twitter is even holding up free speech, right? And 75% of them were like, no. And yeah. um, it's been wild to sort of watch this, watch this whole thing. And uh, that's sort of a, a thing that's happening right now. And we'll see how that, how that evolves over time. But let's, let's talk a little bit more about what you got going on over here, Mr. Lars. So uh, tell us, tell us about this series, because this, what, what age group is, would you say your series is, uh, is prime for? It's definitely not for the faint of heart or, or for young people. It's a bit edgy and um, it's, it's a bit gritty. It's a thriller series. The, the uh, star of the series is, is called Sam Jameson. She catches spies. Her job is a made-up position at the Department of Homeland Security, but she's not their traditional government employee. And um, like all heroes and heroines, she has a bit of emotional baggage that she's working out. And uh, she tends to take things out on on the bad guys and sometimes on the good guys, too. So it it started off on a lark. I was traveling a lot towards the end of my uh, Air Force career, planes, trains and automobiles, spent uh, a bunch of nights in in hotels and a, you know, a bunch of days in, in airports all to, to sit in boring government style meetings. And I wanted to do something constructive with the time. So I'd always wanted to be Tom Clancy when I grew up. But um I discovered that I'm not, I'm definitely not that, but I did enjoy writing a, a decent thriller. And so uh, it didn't start out as a whole lot, like most things do. It was really just more of a lark, but lo and behold, it started to catch on. And uh, I think this is maybe, well, I'm working on book uh, 13 at the moment, if I've done the math right. And a bunch of folks in a bunch of countries have enjoyed it. So it's been been a great ride really enjoyable really fun really unexpected and um held a lot of work along the way but some of those themes they're really along the lines of what what we're talking about here i'm really interested in in the relationship of the individual to the state i'm less interested in red versus blue and, and that kind of political stuff but i am interested in in how the state behaves toward its citizens and and vice versa and uh I'm also quite interested in, in our misbehavior over the years in the clandestine world. So a lot of that stuff sort of surfaces. And um, I've had some fun exploring it. Of course, I've run into some trouble sometimes because people think it's real. <laughs> so that's <laughs> to the right in and say, hey, did this really happen? And I'll say, no, no, for real, that's fake. Like, I definitely made this up. But, but you know, if you're dealing with uh, conspiracy theories and world economies and such, it's very easy to, you know, for people to confuse and conflate the two, because I would submit and I know Travis would agree that a lot of things that have thought to have been conspiracy theories have actually turned out to be actual conspiracies. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And we're experiencing one of them right now, and it, it relates to. Uh, manipulation of our social media using by accounts that are that originate offshore, mm -hmm. particularly Russia's. I mean, they're very good at it. 
Yeah, and they, we do not know what it. you're talking about. We do not I have no idea what you're talking about. We do not use the Twitter. Some of our ladies like to post pictures on the Twitter, <laughs> but we do not use it for anything like the such. Vladimir Putin is just grossly misunderstood. That's what I think they're saying anyway. But, but um, yeah, it's uh, we're we're participating in a psychological operation right now as as guinea pigs. It's something that we've done. You know, we've. One of my graduate degrees is in counterinsurgency and uh, internal conflict, low intensity conflict, revolutions, civil wars, that kind of thing. And man, uh, they're doing a beautiful job of of creating unrest inside the society. I don't know if we wrote the playbook in the you know in the Central Intelligence Agency back in the day. We certainly did our more than our fair share of dirty deeds over in other people's countries. So. In, a, in, a, in some ways, this has kind of come up and that we're experiencing this here, but it, it really does have an impact. Um, you know, you, there's this feature of being a human that if you hear something, you believe it. And it doesn't matter whether or not it's true. You just, you just start to believe it. It's a thing with us. And so when people are exposed to all sorts of different kinds of conspiracy theories, well, it's, it's in our nature to believe them, especially when some subset of those theories are not just theories as you say they're actually real conspiracies that are that are actually going on and it's really hard to figure out which of the, which of the conspiracy theories is a true theory and which is just baloney that's so true i remember there's a there's a great quote i don't remember exactly uh the very first the, the quote of who who created it or who actually said it originally I think it was one of the um, <clears throat> the, C- the heads of the CIA in, in the 80s, and uh, he said something along the lines of, um, we'll know we've done our job when the public believes our version of the truth. And uh, I, th- I think it was a Bill, C- CIA Bill guy, Bill Benny, I don't know if that was his name. Um, but uh, that's, that's kind of what we've seen happen, right? It's like when you, and, you know, when you know the Department of Defense actually works with Hollywood to, to sculpt narratives, and they work with the media companies to sculpt narratives, and then they're they're and then especially with the the passing of the uh, the Smith Munt Act of uh, 2013, when basically they said, okay, it's now legal to use propaganda against U.S. citizens. The game the game changed, and and so when they're seeing the same news from multiple places, and all these authoritative figures of saying that this is the definitive truth but it's not, it's a blatant lie. That's like, that's really dangerous for democracy. And so, so how do we get out of this scenario, uh, Lars, where, you know, our trusted sources lie to us? Yeah, it's an issue. I think, um, I think it relates to the currency and Bill Casey, I think is the guy you're referring to. Uh, We'll know our disinformation program is complete when everything the American public believes is false. Right. Yep. That's exactly it. 1981-ish, it was his tenure. They were, there was a lot of bad behavior in, in that era. Um, I, I think you get at the... Yeah, and if, if think about that, folks, just, just listening in. That era, like George Herbert Walker Bush was the CIA director, like right before that, before he went to go and be the vice president of, of Reagan. So it's like that bad behavior did not just originate. And actually, if you go all the way back to the, the origins of the CIA, you know, when, 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 when uh, Harry Truman allowed... The um, the uh, the brothers. What, what's the name of those guys? The uh, 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 the airport 
Yeah. Uh, yep. Hold on. It'll come to me. The airport in, in Washington, D.C. Dulles. Uh, the Dulles, Dulles yes. brothers. The yep. Dulles brothers. Basically, they convinced Harry Truman to create the CIA and a uh, very dangerous organization where it's almost like the FBI sort of does stuff here. And this is then CIA is supposed to monitor other places. But when they start working in, against us and spying and monitoring on American citizens, like that's been going on for a long time. Like a lot of what we think we know about the CIA and the intelligence is not necessarily the accurate truth. Yeah, I think that's I think that's um, that's on the nose. NSA is is does a bit more of the domestic snooping. CIA is not supposed not supposed to operate huh. on on U.S. Uh, soil. It's important to say that man, not everybody who works in the CIA is a crook or a criminal. It's important to say that you know they're not. There are heroes and there are. Uh, there are men and women of integrity who work there and do their best. And, and what percent would you say? Is any ballpark? It seems so corrupt to me. Like I just can't trust anything. I mean, I, but I know there's gotta be a, a small group of people who are trying to do the right thing. The white hats, well, 20%, 30% less more. Well, it, It's really hard to say. And here, and here's why, because in the game of spying and spies, you you're lying to people. And when you recruit a spy, you're asking him or her to lie to everybody in their life hmm. and uh, about their involvement with you. And then you're supposed to be able to believe the stuff they tell you as if you, as the, as the spy master, you know, as the handler for a particular agent, you're like, you bring this intelligence back to your agency and say, well, here's what old Joe said. And Joe's kind of the name of, of, you know, it's kind of the derogatory term for, for an agent, but Joe's been lying to everybody in his or her life. And uh, how do you trust, <laughs> how do you make state level decisions on the strength of things you hear from people, you know, to be lying to everybody in their life. And you know, they're lying because you tell them what to say. You tell them how to lie to people. And this is true, even you know, in in, um, in in classified programs, there are there are very good and very legitimate reasons that the technical details of what you're doing don't get out because it, it there are many cases in which you you can endanger lives, um, innocent lives as well as, as as other ones, and so there are official lies that you must tell, and if you don't tell them, uh, they they will throw you in the clink, and again there are. There are good reasons for this, and this also opens up the door for abuse. So this gets back to your original question. What do you do when you can't trust the people you're supposed to trust? Um, I think that's, the, that's also at the core of the question, what is value and how do you store it? And isn't it weird when your money doesn't hold its value? It's because we're, uh, we're forced to trust a central authority to look after the value of our currency. And this has a number of, of um, possibly unexpected, but really serious spinoffs. One of which is, I mean, if you want to start a war, wars are extremely expensive. I mean, just unimaginably costly. Almost the only way you can do it is to print more money to go do it. When you look at 1914, when World War I kicked off, there was, the world was reasonably on-ish a gold standard where currencies were mostly, by and large, backed by some gold reserve. 
and the notes would change hands, but they, they weren't overprinted. Of course, there had been many, many episodes of, of printing and devaluation and collapse and, and reestablishment to uh, some sort of baseline of value and then money printing and then collapse. Many, many times the money printing problem began when, when heads of state decided they needed or wanted to go to war with somebody. And so the way to co-opt all of that to happen, the way to get corporations to stop building widgets and start building bullets and bombs, you have to pay them. The people have to eat. They can't starve to death while, at least here in America, while they're uh, building the war machinery. And yet it's not like the treasury has an extra trillion dollars lying around to, to buy all this stuff. So typically they just print it. And um, of course that devalues the currency, but it also allows people in power to manipulate the direction of the nation. You can just sort of pave the path with printed dollars to wherever the heck you want to go. And you can be involved in ridiculously expensive long-term wars. I mean, we, 1990, I think, was when we went into, into the, uh, the Middle East. And we've been there basically continuously ever since. Um, and extracting ourselves is really, really difficult to do. And look at the trajectory of, of the currency over that time frame. It, it, we've printed a lot of it, a great deal of it. Well, once 9 11 happened, <clears throat> right? Once 9 11 happened, then, you know, when, when we were in 2001, we did not have very much debt at all. Like the debt was, had been lowered pretty decently for the most part. And 9 11 happens. And then we're spending, you know, six, seven, eight hundred billion dollars a year on the Department of Defense and the wars. And the next thing you know, here we are 20 years later. 20 something, $25 trillion in debt. It's unbelievable how much debt we've, we've incurred in these endless wars that really benefit the American public zero and really benefits the defense contractors tremendously. Like the ones who win at the most are the defense contractors, right? Is it, am I wrong with that? They do, they do win for sure. I think there's, there's more at play. It's not just pure graft. Um, really a lot of that interest is in protecting the dollar and the dollar and the barrel of oil, like petrodollars is kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So there, you know, there's, um, it's difficult. It's difficult to make a case for the dollar as the settlement currency globally, if we don't have any control over the price and flow of oil, which is the most important commodity on the planet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so a lot of what we do is undertaken to um, make sure that we continue to have access access to to oil. Now, I, I think that it's likely to change over time. I mean, I think we're likely to discover um, a configuration involving renewable energy that that's um, that makes some economic sense. Mm -hmm. And we're you know. Let me ask that, about let me ask about something on that because I have some theories around around this and I probably shared them and, and even ranted a little bit, but the, um, the, you know, the U S dollar since world war, the end of world war two, as you mentioned, has been the petrol dollar. Basically it's the world reserve currency. You have to have dollars before you can buy oil, right? Every country yeah. has had to do that. What are your thoughts now with how the United States and the powers that be uh, the consortium NATO and all these people kicked Russia off the financial system 
And now they're working with China and now Iran and in India and Brazil are now kind of working together to create this other financial system. And it seems to me that other countries around the world are like, oh, shit, they just tried to cancel Russia and kick them off the financial system. Well, maybe they get pissed off at us and going to try to cancel culture us. And so they're kind of preemptively now people are moving away from the petrol dollar. Right. And it seems to me that yeah. that's going to precipitate the collapse of the dollar. It very well may. And I think it's really hard to, to predict what particular events will bring it about. It's really hard to predict a time frame. When you look at them backwards, when you look at crashes, particularly um, bunny printing type crashes, you, you know, it's hard to identify the, the actual pin that pops the balloon. But I think it's really, really difficult to continue to print things and, and also continue to pretend they're valuable. So at some point, at some point, I think there is likely to come. Like, and what I mean by likely, I think we have about 80% odds over the next 20 years that the US dollar will not be a reserve currency for the world. 20 I years? Think, well, when you, when you think about what's the likelihood of something happening, you sort of, you, you need to look at it over a particular time frame. So what are the odds that the dollar collapses today? Pretty small. What are the odds that the dollar collapses to a significant extent, maybe into oblivion, but to something significant over the next two decades, I think are pretty high. Um, is it, are we likely to see something happening in the next five-ish years? I think we're more likely now than we were a year and a half ago. And the reason I say that is because most of the money printing before wound up in the bond market, which wound up in equities. And um, things that people traditionally review, uh, view as investments. So if you own property, it's likely your property value, quote unquote, the price of your property increased significantly. If you own stocks, if you own the right ones or owned an average, all that printed money wound up in stock in equities markets and, and whatnot. So uh, it wasn't really felt by average folks, but over the last year and a half, when uh, the government still printed a bunch of money, but rather than just airdrop it on the bond market, they also airdropped it on the public. And now suddenly you see re in real time, the prices of the stuff you need to buy to live going up. So you experience inflation directly now in a way that you didn't experience it directly two years ago. And I think that is a much more dangerous condition. Because once people understand that I can put this green piece of paper in my pocket with the dead president on its face, and when I pull it out tomorrow, it will be worth less, mm -hmm. significantly less. In, I mean, our, uh, I've seen some numbers on this, 13 to 16%, depending on, on who you believe. The, the real uh, inflation rate, not the manipulated one, uh, but the, the real one, people estimate around that ballpark. And when you do that math, the dollar in your pocket is worth 50 cents five years from now in terms of the purchasing power. So the, the half-life of the dollar is now around five years. Now, it's hard to get an accurate number for real inflation, much less the, you know, the consumer price index and the government reported inflation rate. But people are really keenly aware that the dollar is losing value at an, an accelerating pace. So, uh, you know, is something likely to happen? Yeah, I think so. When will it happen? And it's hard to say. Will it happen in, in the next five years or the next 10? 
with some probability, yes. What's that probability? 50, 50%, 60%, 70%. What's know. it look like when that happens, Lars? Like, uh, you know, go ahead, fictionalize if you want to, but what's the catalyst that's the last straw? And then, you know, how does it play out here? It's an interesting question. I got really interested in this question around the time I became interested in Bitcoin. And uh, actually, Bitcoin features quite prominently in, in a, a series that I, a trilogy that I wrote was within the Sam Jameson series. And in the book called uh, Devolution, the, what, the trigger event was actually a conspiracy. And what they did is they, um, they just targeted the banking industry and the data storage inside that banking industry. And they, they found a way to delete the records of who owes and owns what. And so in this fictionalized, in this fictionalized version, obviously the markets go haywire when everybody's account is just full of gibberish instead of full of the appropriate amounts. And, uh, it, you know, it wasn't entirely a malevolent conspiracy. They were trying to reset, reset the agreement. But one of the first things that happens is that people try to spend the, every last dollar they have while the prices of goods are low enough that they can afford them. Like next month, you might not be able to afford bread or food. So you buy every bit of probably dry goods and canned goods that you can possibly buy with every last dollar that you have when it goes into a hyperinflation kind of thing. And of course, what happens when everybody is trying to spend every last dollar all at once, the hyperinflation problem just gets accelerated to the max. And it, it, um, it really exposes the fragility of society. Like what happens if the truck full of food doesn't show up to the grocery store in my suburb? It's, I mean, I have deer in my yard and they walk through every morning. I'm going to shoot a deer and feed my family with a deer, but not everybody has that luxury. And, uh, and guess what? It won't take very long before there aren't any more deer walking through people's yards because they'll all be shot and they'll all be in somebody's, you know, every family will be eating, eating deer and rabbits from their, from their yard. But well, we live in cities and we live in, in populated areas and uh, we require massive infrastructure to bring food in from where it's grown, all sorts of different places on the globe and uh, to put on our tables. And this infrastructure requires a currency that people trust. Even if I'm just driving the truck from A to B um, and you want to pay me in dollars, by that time I get from A to B, I might not be able to afford the gas to get back home, depending on how the, the dollar is going. So there's this period of, of um, man, civilization loses its civilization, loses its civility. Times get super hard. And uh, it really brings out, I think, the best and the worst in people when we get into this kind of survival mode. Um, so, you know, the, the initial throes of it can be very, very ugly. And so it does, I think it does behoove us to do a bit of planning, you know, to have some reserves. And we got a little bit of taste of this when the lockdown happened. I, I found it uh, sad and hilarious that the big scarcity item was toilet paper. <laughs> Things shut down. I'm like, this is absurd. How is it? Well, what are you going to use? Leaves? Were you going to go use leaves? I mean, come on, Lars. You know? No, no, I get it. 
I'm a big believer in toilet paper. I'm just saying, you know, food. No, that wasn't the big scarcity item. It, it ended up in this case being toilet paper. But when I think when things happen for real, if they happen a particular way, not every crash looks like this, but a crash could certainly look like this. And uh, it, it can get very, very dicey. A lot of folks can lose their lives. Families lose things. Um, gangs pop up running through neighborhoods, looting, taking what food they can to bring back to their people, to feed their people, you know? So it, it, can, get, uh, it can get really medieval, really fast. And that's, that's a concern, not to scare folks, not to, you know, all the things, but it's, it's something that we need to be considering because I don't know uh, any, any fiat currency that has survived as long as the dollar has and I think it's only survived that long because it's been spread throughout the entire globe in this case, because it's the reserve currency and the SWIFT system settles many, 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 a very large percentage of all the transactions that occur between banks settled in the US dollar. So there's this giant pool now that we can just fill with dollars, whereas inflated currency used to just stop at the country's borders. Now. The dollar doesn't really stop at the borders. So that means that we can, we can flood so much more of civilization with dollars. And it also means so many more people will be impacted when it goes sideways. Because it always goes sideways. It's really hard for individuals to be smarter than, like it's hard for any of us to be smarter than all of us, right? That there is something to be said for, for markets doing what markets do to help price goods and services properly. And um, I think we are in some jeopardy. Now, I don't think we should need to go out shooting our neighbors and uh, you know, raiding their pantry. I think there's some smart stuff we could do in the meantime to help uh, survive that transition. So it sounds to me like, like you, know, you got some, some real experience in the space and you're writing this sort of uh, what would you call it? Like a, a techno thriller, psychological thriller? It seems like it's kind of like Mr. Robot in a way. <laughs> well, it's uh, so all interesting stories are about personalities, whether they're whether they're real or virtual or robotic. And at the middle of this is is the people trying to figure out the mechanics of the individual conspiracies to stop them and or reverse the damage. So it's, um, but there are definitely technical elements to it like like Bitcoin, for example. And um, one of the interesting notes, it's kind of cute actually when I go back and look at it. During one of the, one of the meltdowns, I had, um, I think I had said, oh, and the, the price of Bitcoin is, it's gotten to be completely outrageous. It's like uh, over, over $15,000 each, each Bitcoin. And I look back at it now and I go, oh, how cute. But at the time, that would have been a massive change from where the price of Bitcoin was. Um, but it, um, I think it will definitely figure prominently and I hope, I hope we can make this transition smoothly and gradually because it'll be a massive transmission, uh, transition. I hope it's not because of a, of a meltdown. I hope it's, we're able to read the tea leaves and we're able to, to place some infrastructure. I hope we're able to, um, accommodate on, uh, off-chain transactions in a way that has integrity 
And that allows the network to scale significantly so that this transition doesn't, I mean, it doesn't leave a bunch of destruction in its wake. Well, hopefully your fiction ends with a happy ending rather than the dark road that we could end up going down here in the United States. I mean, when the the craziness that we're seeing is, seems to be led by a very vocal minority. But when you live in a time that you can't say that men are men and women are women, that there's actually pushback against that, you know, civilization is teetering on the edge of sanity, don't you think? Yeah, the interesting thing is that there are always people who are crazy. But at this moment, those folks have a disproportionately amplified voice. I think on both ends of the political spectrum, like it's, we tend to gravitate toward the most outrageous thing possible. And that tends to characterize everybody. I'd also like to say that, man, there's an awful lot of common sense running around out there too. It's just not often on social media or it's not on, I mean, it's definitely not on cable news. It's definitely not on your, on your favorite political blog necessarily. It's more in conversations with real people who think deeply about things and understand that nothing is black and white, nothing is black or white. And that the way through is always to, to listen and to try to understand before you try to dictate to somebody. So hopefully we'll get back to something like that. I love the idea of having a decentralized world where we don't have to have a central figure who's supposed to remain trustworthy, um, even in spite of all these pressures against remaining trustworthy. I'm really optimistic for where we're headed. I think Bitcoin is a game changer, obviously financially, but I think importantly, also politically. So I think, I think there's a happy ending. Um, I think we may, we may, may have an uphill climb <laughs> before then. <laughs> well, that's a partially optimistic way to end. Uh, people, you can check out Lars' uh, books and content at Lars, L-A-R-S dot buzz. Dude, thanks for coming on and sharing your thoughts with us today. Thanks so much for your time, guys. I really enjoyed it. Yar, that was Lars. I wonder if he's part pirate. Do you suppose he's part pirate like Johnny Depp? <laughs> Possibly. What, what is with the fascination? Like, I, I, so I've watched about one minute of this whole trial thing because it popped up on Twitter. And I'm like, I do not understand. You know, there's war in the world. We've been locked down for two years. The economy is, is in turmoil. People are concerned about pronouns. And like we care about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's marriage. I just, I don't get the bizarre fascination. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the world and they just like to distract us with dumb shit. Yeah. Look at, look at, it's like sleight of hand. Don't look over here. Look at this dance monkeys dance. Now everybody talk about this and this. Wait a second, Joel. Did you just take a shit in my bed? (laughs) Why would I do that? What are you doing? Why what the hell I, is that all about? Why? So is that that's part of like that's what I heard. That's right? a, one of the crazy drama things that's going on. That's I haven't watched any of it. I just saw the headline that Amber Heard got mad. They had a fight and she took a shit in his bed. And, she literally uh, shit the bed. She literally shit the bed, and uh, that's gross. Don't don't anybody ever shit in my bed. That'd be not nice. Man. Yeah, only I can do that. Don't, <laughs> if you don't kick your ass, you do that. I was like, like well, you will be canceled. Yeah. Yeah, that that happens, too. That's another story for another day. Gathering intel 
on a little bit of cancellation and uh, not going any further with it at this moment, but soon to be, we'll share with you information and uh, glad that you guys are here. Thanks for listening in. Be sure to um, review us, rate us, tell us, you know, magical things. You can also write us at badcryptopodcast at gmail.com or uh, call the Bad Crypto Hotline and leave us a voicemail. We love hearing from you, 708-885-9030. If you're in the car, go and pull over right now. Gently, make sure you signal. Okay, now pull over. Write this down, 708-885-9030. And now you can go back to wherever it was you were going. Hopefully somewhere cool. Hopefully somewhere cool. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you would love to leave us a review, we would love to read your review. Please do that. And uh, subscribe to us on all the channels and all the things. And anything else, Sir Lord, Mr. Jokom? I think you need to go to The Bad Crypto Podcast is a production of Bad Crypto, LLC. The content of the show, the videos, and the website is provided for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It's not intended to be and does not constitute financial, investment, or trading advice of any kind. You shouldn't make any decisions as to finances, investing, trading, or anything else based on this information without undertaking independent due diligence and consultation with a professional financial advisor. Please understand that the trading of Bitcoin's and alternative cryptocurrencies have potential risks involved. Anyone wishing to invest in any of the currencies or tokens mentioned on this podcast should first seek their own independent professional financial advisor.